just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. How does Jacob deGrom look as a fantasy pitcher in Texas? How about Trey Turner in Philadelphia? I'll ask Ray Murphy about those two players and many more next on a special Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, December 13th. We could call this show number 40 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season, but I think it makes more sense to call it show number one of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and whatever number we put on it, we have another great Tuesday special edition for you. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, about the fantasy effects of more than 20 players who have changed teams in a hectic free agent frenzy. Besides Jacob deGrom, we'll have starting pitchers Justin Verlander in New York, Zach Eflin in Tampa, the sneakily interesting Jose Quintana in St. Louis, and more. In addition to Trey Turner going to Philadelphia, we'll talk about Xander Bogarts in San Diego, Josh Bell in Cleveland, Cody Bellinger in Chicago, Wilson Contreras in St. Louis, and many more. And we'll talk about 10 relief pitchers, including Kenley Jansen and Chris Martin in Boston, and potential closers Carlos Estevez in Los Angeles and Miguel Castro in Arizona. In all, it's a really big Tuesday special edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? 29 freshly signed free agents? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday special edition, we'll talk about starting pitchers with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, PD. Good to be here. Happy holidays. Happy hot stove. It is a happy hot stove. I don't remember this much action this early in the sort of hot stove offseason. We usually wait till maybe after the new year for the free agents to really start signing in bulk. At least that's the way I remembered. Of course, I could be dead wrong. It, does this seem like a more active free agent period than usual? Well, you know, we are, I think our expectations got totally skewed by that pre-lockout binge last year where we had like a week or 10 days that were absolutely nuts, right? It was like the trade deadline on, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of drug. But, uh, you know, for a quote-unquote normal multiple-month offseason, this certainly seems like an active December. It's been, you know, enjoyable and yet, you know, spaced out a little bit more so that I think we have a little bit of time to you know, actually digest what's going on rather than drinking from the fire hose. Now I'm really mixing my eating and drinking (laughs) metaphors, but you get the idea. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's a runaway train uh, that's about to throw anchor, however that one goes. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if the amount of action that we've seen thus far is partly a result of a lot of guys with a lot of money wanting to strike while they thought the iron was hot or to 
basically preempt anybody from getting involved in what they wanted to do. Uh, there's a lot of money got spent in this first little while. It really did. And I think that's part of a reminder of where we've been the last couple of years, right? Like everything else in the world, you know, working in reverse chronological order. We already talked about the lockout last year. And even though there was a lot of movement, I think blowing a 99 day hole in the off season, you know, curtailed some activity in terms of people making big investments or, you know, we had cases like Carlos Correa looking for a one-year deal last year, where I think some of that was related to just the compressed nature of the offseason, and there wasn't time to sort of do a, a full search either on his side or on the team side. And then you go back a year before that, two years before that, and now you have the pandemic issues and teams losing revenue and being concerned about you know, maybe some budget constraints from ownership. But now all of that's all that's behind us. It's a regular offseason. We've got labor peaks for the next still four plus years. And I think that all leads to blue skies and clarity from the teams and maybe a little backlog of, you know, we spent a little less money than uh we in the in prior years than maybe we budgeted for because of the aforementioned factors. So, you know, time to splash some money around. And of course, we have at least a couple of owners here, maybe three if you count San Diego, but the Mets owner obviously is going to throw as much money as he thinks he can to solve whatever problems he thinks his roster has. Texas did the same last year, signing Semyon and Seeger. They seem to be saying, and San Diego, of course, acquiring Juan Soto for a big, uh, big ticket. They seem to be saying, we're willing to throw as much money as we have to to make our teams competitive. And... As I said, maybe this was something preemptive as they got in on uh, DeGrom, Verlander, and some of these guys right away because uh, they didn't want to, I think maybe they just wanted to scoop the field before the field could really get rolling and uh, get the best players early. But um, And we, we won't have to talk about, I think, whether they did the right thing from a financial point of view. There's a lots of questions about whether you sign a Jacob DeGrom for that much money for five years, given his age and injury history and so forth. And Justin Verlander's 40, and a lot of these guys are in their 30s, have injury histories. But that didn't seem to stop anybody from making those plays. So let's start, Ray, with uh, probably the biggest signing so far, at least the one that drew the most attention when it happened, and that's Jacob DeGrom leaving the Mets to go and sign a five-year, $185 million contract with Texas. Uh, what do you think of this from a fantasy perspective? How does the how does the move affect Jacob DeGrom's fantasy value? Yeah, this one's fascinating, right? I think our Rod Truesdale kind of summed it up when he wrote it up in our uh, Point in Time Today column when he called it, you know, without question, the biggest risk-reward contract of the offseason. And I just can't get past that. It is such a risk-reward situation. And normally I might start to get into, you know, reading tea leaves like, well, you know, the Rangers knew, you know, did a full, full physical on them and they're willing to commit $185 million dollars. On the other hand, Steve Cohen's got more money than anyone and is splashing it around in every direction, and yet the Mets did not retain DeGrom. What are we we reading to that? And at some point, you just throw up your hands and you say, boy, I don't know. (laughs) It's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, for sure, that's a pretty good environment for DeGrom to pitch. We've talked before about how that new globe life 
field park, whatever it is, is actually way more picture friendly since it's air conditioned and has a roof than the former outdoor parks in Texas. But let's face it, Jacob DeGrom, DeGrom is really good in any environment. And the real question isn't, you know, how do the park factors help him? The real question is, how many innings is he going to throw? And I don't have any damn idea. And anybody who tells you they do is lying, I think. That said, we do know that he only threw 64 and a third innings last year. And over the last three seasons, I think he's only made 38 starts, which really isn't many more starts than you'd expect in a full single season from an ace starting pitcher. You probably would be looking for 32 to 34 starts. And he's barely managed that over the last three seasons. And you mentioned... uh, Rod's coverage in Baseball HQ at the the Playing Time Today article, and there's an aphorism that Baseball HQ came out with a long time ago, and it says that chronically injured players don't just get healthy. And I think that that's something that anybody who's looking at Jacob deGrom for this year's draft season really needs to bear in mind, because he has been chronically injured. It's been a succession of pitching-related injuries, shall we say, and I don't know how much of a discount I would have to get at a draft before I would consider Jacob deGrom as my SP1. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable right now without taking too close a look at ADPs or uh, auction values that someone else at my table is going to be willing to pay more for him than I will. Uh, You know, we joked, semi-joked, I think, in his baseball forecaster commentary this year that he has displayed closer-worthy skills as a starting pitcher. That's how elite he is. He is as good as a starter as a front-end closer is. But the bad news is, as you alluded to, he's also carried the workload of a closer for the last three years, which is kind of not what you want either for your starting rotation or $485 million, million over the next several years. So I don't see how you can realistically invest a top five round pick, which I'm sure he's going to cost given the, uh, given the, the workload concerns. And, you know, his defenders will say things like, well, you know, it's, these have all been non-surgical, you know, strains and kind of things. And it's, it hasn't been a, a UCL or a chronic shoulder or anything like that. Sure. But at age 34, the idea that the strains and pulls and associated tweaks are just going to go away also seems like fallacy to me too. So I d- I would not spend a high draft pick on him, but I wouldn't have given him $185 million either. So clearly, you know, that's just me. And you mentioned a reliever like workload. In fact, I read somewhere that he, he barely got more innings than Edwin Diaz for the Mets this year. Uh, Edwin Diaz, of course, was a very valuable closer, but you sh- as I said, you sure need more than 64 innings to get any kind of fantasy value out of Jacob deGrom, even if he's as outstanding this coming year as he was last year with the uh, out-of-this-world decimals and the, the tremendous strikeout ratios. But a high strikeout ratio doesn't do you much good if you're only getting 65 innings. Exactly right. And just to add to... The concerns, like if you look at some what some of the Mets people are saying, and for sure that's all spin on the way out the door, right? But keep in mind that when DeGrom came back from his long period of inactivity this summer due to injury, you know, when they really needed him in the last couple of starts in September, when they were, you know, there was a very prominent game against the Braves when he suddenly wasn't unhittable anymore either. So, I mean, there's also, there's the injury risk, but there's also the risk that either due to age-related decline or just accumulated effects of these strains and 
everything else that's kept him on the shelf that he turns into a mere mortal again, which you know further raises the risk profile. And before we leave this, we're going to be talking a lot about park effects today, Ray, because the park effects play a huge role in how a player's value might change for fantasy purposes. But in addition to the park itself, I think there's something that we need to be keeping in mind when we're thinking about Jacob deGrom, about team context. And that is, last year, the Mets scored 854 runs and Texas scored 674 runs. That's 180 runs difference, which is more than a run a game. And uh, that doesn't augur well for a guy chasing wins. I mean, you've got to score runs to win games, as we know. And the other part of it, from a team context, is the relief core in New York was third in XFIP last year. Texas was 18th. And the Sierra figures are pretty much the same. Very high results for the Mets, very low results or middling results for Texas. So in the team context, that's something else to be aware of when you're thinking about whether to place a bid or to spend a, a high draft pick on Jacob deGrom is that the team is not as prepared to help Jacob deGrom get wins as the Mets would have been. That's right. It's not, you, you mentioned Edwin Diaz earlier, it's not going to be Edwin Diaz coming in to close out you know, the, the deGrom win in April. It's going to be, boy, I don't know, Jose Leclerc or whoever's... Uh, Whoever comes out of March with the closer job in Texas, not exactly the same thing. And, you know, it's also interesting, you know, sort of a more on a global level, uh, you know, the, you know you, it's not just that the Mets scored more runs, but you know, one of the things to keep in mind that we, I know we talked about out at First Pitch Arizona is that the addition of the DH in the NL um, actually ramped up NL offense to the point where the NL is the higher scoring league than the AL right now at a global level, which is pretty wild for anybody who, um, you know, is sort of just checking in after a number of years of the AL always being the higher scoring league and the NL because of the DH not being, it didn't just level things off it actually moved the NL up a tick. So, uh, you know, in this case, an, a, a global NL to AL move is slightly pitcher friendly for DeGrom, which is, you know, I'm 50 years old and that's counterintuitive for everything I know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. And we have to get used to that kind of stuff. And the balance schedule, I think, will probably take some getting used to as well in that regard when we're trying to figure out who has the tougher road to hoe. It used to be that, you know, you'd always bump up all your American League Central pitchers because, hey, look at the, they get to pitch against Detroit and Kansas City a million times. And, and um, you know, if you're in the American League East, it's a rougher road to hoe if you're a pitcher and, and people quite wisely, I think, took that into account. Uh, moving along, uh, the Mets didn't waste much time after DeGrom left to replace him at the top of their rotation by signing Justin Verlander away from Houston. He's 40 years old, he got a big package, but only for two years, which maybe shows that the Mets were thinking about age risk and performance risk and those kind of things. But now that Justin Verlander is in New York, what do you think of him as a fantasy SP1? You know, Verlander is just such a, an outlier, a unicorn, a robot, whatever you want to call him, in that other than the, uh, you know, the missed 2021 season uh, coming off of the Tommy John in that I think popped up in summer of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, right when um, baseball was coming back, um, you know, he's been so consistent and able to um, carry such a workload, you know, kind of the anti-DeGrom, except for that one year. Uh, but, you know, we can't just hand wave that either. He is 40 years old. He is coming off a workload spike of going from zero for like two years running to 
a full season last year, and we can't just assume that goes on forever. But in terms of a risk profile, you know, the Mets giving two years to somebody who has carried a full season workload last year and comes into 2023 healthy seems like a much better idea to me. So I, you know, I'll, I'll give the Mets credit for, um, you know, resource allocation here. If they were going to, you know, spend money at the top of the starting pitcher market, I think they probably did it in the most advantageous way. And so for fantasy purposes, do you put him in the top tier of SP1s? Or are you kind of, uh, I've heard some people say he's kind of one of those 1A type of uh, starting pitchers that he's not the top level, but he's not the second level either. He's kind of in that sandwich round in between. You know, he can't be as good as he was last year with a 175 ERA or whatever it was. You know, we always say once your ERA gets under two, you got to be kind of both lucky and good, right? And Verlander was that. However, you know, to, looping it back to the DeGrom conversation about going from the Mets team context to Texas, Verlander goes from a very good team context in Houston to another very good team context with the Mets, the park factors are a little better for him there. So if you had to stipulate that Verlander was leaving Houston and all of the, you know, advantages that that came with in terms of the team around him, the bullpen, the lineup, et cetera, you know, landing with the Mets is as close to equivalent as you can get. Maybe, you know, maybe a little bit better in terms of park factors, maybe a little, you know, uh, we'll see how the offenses shake out by the time they, uh, by the time opening day comes around, but still a, a very good spot for Verlander. And, you know, is he a one or a one A is, you know, kind of splitting hairs for me, but, you know, comfortably ahead of DeGrom for one for, for, for redraft leagues and probably were probably someone who I would take a, uh, who I would comfortably take as my first starting pitcher in, you know, to use the same bar I used before the top five rounds of a, uh, of a, of a mixed redraft league. Yeah. I don't think the question is going to be top five rounds. I think it's going to be more like, are you going to be willing to spend somewhere in the top three rounds or maybe round three, yeah. round four, and at which point it becomes a more difficult choice. And it, a lot of it depends of course, on who else is out there at the time, what your roster looks like at the time. There's all those things. So it's, Interesting to think about what the ADP might be or the round might be, but in a way it's kind of angels on the head of a pin because there are so many other contextual things that affect that choice in the moment that you can kind of set a target where you would say, geez, if Verlander's there for me in round four, I'll take him. But you might get to round four already having picked up a couple of starting pitchers and, and therefore not as interested or thought otherwise about your uh, about your roster setup and so forth. Uh, an interesting thing about Verlander that I was looking at was the uh, the luck metrics that he had in uh, 2022, this fantastic year, 25% hit rate and an 83% strand. And I thought, well, there's something that's due for correction. And then I went and looked back at his Baseball HQ player page, and in 2018 and 19, his strand rates were over 80% both of those years as well. And I wonder if maybe there are certain pitchers like Verlander and perhaps some others, I would should have looked at DeGrom, I suppose, whose strand rates are just going to be higher because they're just better. Yeah, there's something to that. He, you know, 25 and 83 is a pretty favorable combination, but that's how you get the difference between that 175 ERA that I referenced earlier and his 326 expected ERA in 22, which is still very good. Now, if you look at, 
you know, those 18 and 19 seasons, the expected ERA was 316 and 318 those years. So, you know, that just shows a that Verlander came back with sort of exactly the same skill set he left with, which is no small feat after that missed time. But I think also gives you a pretty narrow range of what kind of pitcher we can expect him to be. I, I think a good chunk of that strand rate walk in particular last year was the fact that he kept the ball in the park so well. He had a 6% home run per fly, which is, you know, about half of what it was in the uh, in, in his sort of late last decade peak. So, you know, should have should have been due for a few more home runs and he's always had a little bit of a fly ball tilt. So, you know, there's a, there, there's a little bit of risk there, but you know, that's another nice thing about going to New York is those park factors that that park tends to hold the ball really well. So it's tough to, it's, it's tough to sit here and say, you know, that the home run rate is going to spike in New York. That doesn't seem like the, uh, the right, the right adjustment. Maybe there's a, li- maybe there's a little bit of regression there, but it's uh, you know, in terms of, Skills, environment, team context, everything's great about Verlander and, and, and this matchup, this, this marriage with the Mets. It's really just a question of, you know, he's 40 and when is he going to start showing signs of that? And one last thing I'll mention about Verlander is we've come to think of him as a very high strikeout pitcher, but sort of quietly his strikeout rate has been declining uh, over the last four years. It's 12, 12, 11, nine and a half last year, which is not really outstanding in modern baseball. There's lots of pitchers who are starters who are at nine and a half strikeouts per nine. It's barely one strikeout per inning. And there's plenty of that to be found out there. Uh, Again, I I don't know what I'm going to do about Justin Verlander. I'll certainly look at him, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be willing to pay the price that it takes, especially considering there are stronger SP1 candidates out there who represent, to me anyway, represent a lot less risk. Yeah, you know, and you're right. If you look at the at the percent percentage stats instead of the per nines, it sort of bubbles out a little bit better. And that in those 2018 2019 seasons, he was a 30 percent strikeout guy, and that dropped to 23 last year. He offset that both with both with the hit and strand rates, as we mentioned, but also his controls gotten better. You know, he walked only four percent of batters last year, which is you know a couple of ticks lower than. You know, again, that you know, sort of last decade version of Verlander. You know, th- this profile is still plenty good and plenty. C- c- he could be plenty successful with that. But I think your point about him not necessarily being, you know, much more than a strikeout and inning guy for however many innings you get him for is probably fine. Uh, you know, is is an entirely reasonable criticism. But the context gets to be key. You need to make decisions like comparing him against Sandy Alcantara just to pull another. NL East ace out of the pile, right? Where Alcantara is probably going to throw more innings, probably going to have more strikeouts, but the, the, the all the team context, the wins, the bullpen, etc., uh, the run support favor Verlander heavily there, and that's and, and that you know that matters in terms of an overall population. Another New York Met on the move, Taiwan Walker leaves for Philadelphia. And in this case, Ray, I don't think the park change is really beneficial at all for his fantasy value. No, going from New York to Philadelphia is a change to a more hitter-friendly venue. Of course, we've seen Mets make this move before. You know, Zach Wheeler famously a few years back, uh, you know, made this move and and, and did fine. Uh, You know, maybe not as bad as you might think off the cuff. Walker is a, you know, has a ground ball tilt to him. You know, he, 
he doesn't give up fly balls at the same rate as, say, a Verlander. And, you know, keeping in mind what else the Phillies did this year, uh, you know, by signing Trey Turner, installing him at shortstop, sliding uh, Stott over to second base, that, you know, that Philly infield defense has been pretty bad for a couple years running, but Walker's going to get a better version of that uh, next year. So maybe not, uh, not not a disastrous ballpark shift for Walker, just a just a incremental downturn. I was looking at his Baseball HQ player page, a $10 fantasy season last year, but it looks like it was mostly due to 12 wins, and uh, Philadelphia is going to score runs. We know that there's going to be run support for Taiwan Walker next year, but again, there's a lot of stuff mitigating against it, including uh, infield defense in particular, but also the park itself. Uh, moving along, uh, how about Jamison Tyon moves along from New York, but the Yankees this time, and goes to Chicago. What do you think of Jamison Tyon as a, well, not an SP1, but maybe a two or a three? Yeah, you know, he's going to add some depth to that uh, Cubs rotation for sure. And he's got a, uh, you, you know, he had had a couple of couple of good, by good, I guess I mean healthy years with the Yankees after, you know, a pretty long checkered injury career before, before that. But, you know, after coming off uh, 177 innings of just under four, ERA for the Yankees last year, you know, he, he, uh, again, you know, has now demonstrated some, you know, refound, rediscovered durability, shall we say, um, you know, and it's not necessarily a case where he's one of those chronically injured players as much as he had, um, a, uh, you know, one really bad injury, uh, you know, the, the Tommy John in 2019, 2020 that kept him out. So he's now demonstrated that he's several years clear of that. And, you know, he's not, you know, kind of like we were talking about with Tyone, you know, there's a reason that their contracts are pretty similar in that, you know, uh, Tyone also comes like Walker uh, with, you know, not elite strikeout rates, not elite skills, but, you know, his value last year, $11 in mixed five by five was also propped up by wins he got from the Yankees. But if the Cubs get 175 innings of sub four ERA from him again, which you know is what his skills say he should be willing to he should be able to offer them. They're they're going to be happy with that investment. I think that's right, and it's interesting the way the Cubs seem to be forming this pitching rotation. You've now added Jamison Tyon to Kyle Hendricks and Marcus Stroman, and all all of these guys seem to be sort of innings eaters. Put the ball in play. Let your let your team make outs for you. I don't know how good Chicago is at that. Uh, relatively few strikeouts, but ERAs that tend to be a little better than their estimators. Is this the Cubs' model of starting pitching? It seems to be. There was a lot of chatter, you know, even a couple of years ago when they signed uh, Zach Davies and Wade Miley and a bunch of guys like that, right? That they were that they were chasing after something else in the market and we weren't quite sure what it was, but they, they basically, it, it seemed like what they were doing was chasing some skill of inducing soft contact because the skill of high velocity and strikeouts was too expensive in the market. Now the Cubs have had a couple of pretty bad years, so it's hard to say that that strategy worked out well, but it does seem like that there's, you know, some 2.0 version or some other, version of this strategy going on here, whether they're just looking for innings eaters who can give them five, five, five and two thirds innings and then turn it over to a better skilled bullpen and know that these relievers, these starters, excuse me, will take the ball when they're at least durable and they may not have the eye popping skills, but they'll, you know, sort of more of a mid tier rotation, keep the team in the day in the game kind of profile. But 
you know, on the flip side, this is a lot of money to pay for keeping team in the game. So, uh, you know, maybe they, maybe there's something they think they can improve or tease out of this, these guys between the infield defense and the ballpark and whatever else. But, uh, you know, these are the edges that these teams are all trying to provide, trying to exploit. And it seems like the Cubs, you know, this profile that they chase seems like they think they have something there, but, you know, from, for, for fantasy purposes, it's hard to say that the results have really borne that out. An article I read somewhere right after the trade said, uh, you know, this looks like it is the model and the models probably worked a lot better when you Darvish was at the front of it rather than uh, Marcus Stroman, <laughs> exactly. you know, and that does make a difference. Uh, maybe the biggest park difference for starting pitchers in, in this free agent period so far, I think has been Zach Eflin going from Philadelphia to Tampa. And those are really big park swings. Yeah, it really is. Um, Eflin, you know, of course, is another one, you know, maybe not to the extent of the Grom where, but, but the biggest concern with him is his health and how many innings he's going to pitch. You know, he's missed a lot of time in the last couple of years with uh, knee problems and, you know, sort of pretty famously came back late in, late in the 2022 season in the regular season briefly ended up in the closer role because they couldn't get him stretched out as a starter and the bullpen was sort of on fire and he came in and stabilized it and sort of ended up you know, in kind of a setup swingman role in the playoffs with some, with some success. So maybe he, maybe he actually enhanced his value there because we know how Tampa thinks of pitchers as, you know, interchangeable role, role commodities, right? You can pitch the ninth inning tonight, the first inning tomorrow, and then the fourth through six, two days after that. Right. And, uh, that, that, that maybe it might be that, uh, the work that Eflin did late in 2022 sort of showed the Rays that he fits into that model. And as a result, I think we're projecting him as a swingman kind of role with, you know, 120 innings, you know, scattered anytime through the game, but probably not a traditional six inning starter. So we'll see what happens when camps open, but that's, uh, you know, when anytime somebody signs in Tampa, you got to figure they're just kind of throwing him into the uh, in, in, into the mill, and they're just going to put him on the treadmill and uh, you know move him around everywhere. Well, one of Eflin's problems up until 2022 was that he gave up home runs. He had a couple of seasons uh, in the 1.5 range, one uh, 2.2 home runs per nine innings. That was a problem for him. And as I mentioned earlier, boy, this is a big park difference, uh, Tampa cuts home runs by minus 19% and minus 17% left-hand, right-hand, whereas Philadelphia's plus 22 and plus 26. That's a 40 percentage point difference in home runs allowed, which has got to help Zach Eflin and pretty much any pitcher who's making that transition. Yeah, it's a great point that you know, the sort of the, the worst case scenario for Eflin probably gets goes a little bit off the table because of the park factors. And then on top of that, you know, you also can't rule out that Tampa's going to get a hold of them in spring training and say, Hey, look, you keep giving up home runs when you throw this pitch after this pitch, stop doing that. <laughs> and, and they'll, uh, you, you know, some adjustment like that or some, you know, they have to, you know, we won't find out till later if they signed him because they think they can alter the tilt on his slider or whatever it is to, uh, you know, to actually, you know, even further enhance the results here. But, you know, Tampa making a $40 million commitment to somebody is not trivial. So you do have to think that they've got some kind of plans for Zach Eflin. Yeah. My first thought was an ace up their sleeve, literally, as far as his pitching might be concerned. And the 
player that came to my mind was Corey Kluber, who in his last three years before he moved to Tampa, you know, he had 24 starts altogether, a four and a half Sierra, 140 something whip, uh, 10% walk rate. Then he goes to Tampa, gets 31 starts, has a Sierra under four, 121 whip, 3% walk rate. There's something in that Tampa organization, a lot like the Giants, I think, where they, as you said, they look at they look at these guys' skills and they look at their arm slots and they look at their pitch mixes and they say, the reason this guy is not doing as well as he could is because his team is not optimizing what he's doing out there and we think we can. And so far, I think you have to kind of look at their results and say, the fact that he goes to Tampa, in addition to all the park difference and so forth kind of differences, is that you have to give props to the organization. And we've talked about this before, but when you're looking at players for rostering purposes in drafts or, or in auctions, you almost always want to give a pitcher a bump if he's got some kind of Tampa connection. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, contrasting that with what I was saying about the Cubs earlier, the Cubs have their profile of pitcher like we were talking about, but they haven't really demonstrated to us from a fantasy point of view that they get better mileage out of those pitchers. Uh, the Rays have. And therefore, I think we have to give them a little bit of credit here, as you suggest, that they've got something in mind of how to best extract value from Zach Eflin. Sitting here and looking at that uh, player link page that also shows his injury history, you see a long history of knee problems going all the way back through his career, all the way back to 2016 and 17, time on the DL for uh, patella problems. And then those came up again in both 2021 and 2022. So I get, uh, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I wonder if the secret or the plan that Tampa has for him involves workload management. And it might be, we're never going to ask you to throw hundred pitches. We're never going to ask you to throw six innings. We're going to put an opener opener in front of you. You're going to face 18 batters. It's going to be 70 pitches max. And, you know, we'll keep you, we'll, we'll, we'll keep some load off your knees that way. We'll, you know, optimize your pitch mix that way because you're not going to face anybody more than two times through the order. And here, go throw your best two pitches, knock yourself out. We'll wait and see, but you know anything in that scope would not surprise me at all. So, if you're drafting day after tomorrow, Ray, where, what do you think of Zach Eflin as a guy you might want to have on your roster? He he certainly falls into the group of guys as a you know if we think of him as a starter for the moment, absent all the stuff I just said. If we think of him as a starter, I think he's a you know he's a matchup guy. But when I'm targeting matchup guys, be it anything from my SP five, six, seven bench guys, et cetera, guys who are going to be on my 30 man, 30 man roster in a mixed league. But you know, the ones who would be in and out of my lineup, you know, he certainly offers some upside from a team context and sort of unknown potential here that, you know, I would throw him into that, you know, back half of my rotation and, you know, wait and see what happens. You know, talking of organizations that seem to do well with starting pitchers, uh, the Dodgers have kind of moved themselves into the forefront of that conversation. And a guy like Tyler Anderson, who was uh, uh, terrific in 2022, his age 32 season just came out of nowhere with a 2.57 ERA, one whip, 16% strikeout minus walk. He looked terrific as a Los Angeles Dodger. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And I went and looked at some of the other guys that he has, uh, 
uh, on his uh, as his rotation teammates and Kershaw, Gonsolin, and Julio Arias were all in pretty much the same boat as far as uh, hit rates and strand rates, which ordinarily look lucky. But when four starters on a team are all doing it, you have to start to wonder, well, is there some kind of secret sauce that the Dodgers have figured out? And if that's so, does the player take the secret sauce with him when he moves, as Tyler Anderson will do uh, down to the other end of L.A. County, I guess, into Orange County, and he'll be pitching for the Angels this year. Can he take that Dodger magic and bring it appropriately enough to Anaheim? Yeah, I think that really is a great summary of the Tyler Anderson situation. I think for after leaving the Dodgers, I think the Angels are actually a relatively decent landing point. For Anderson, you know, he presumably slots into, you know, the six-man rotation with Otani, so the workload gets a little bit managed. He's left-handed, and that's a pretty decent place for a left-hander to pitch. Um, obviously, a lot of questions about the lineup in the bullpen around him, big downgrades there from the Dodgers. So, you know, the win situation is a little, uh, shall we say, a little bit messier than it is for when he was back up the I-5 in L.A. with the Dodgers. But, yeah, you really hit the nail on the head with the expected ERA. I remember last summer, Ryan Bloomfield wrote a Fat and Fluke spotlight piece on Tony Gonsolin, which he got into that that aspect of what Gonsolin was doing in terms of super favorable hit and strand rates and and thus outpitching his expected ERA was not an outlier on the Dodgers. Literally everybody was doing it as you're observing here. So is whatever they do, they did to Anderson, you know, does, does that come with him on the way down on the angels? That becomes the key question. And I, it seems like the answer is pretty much wait and see. The other possibility of course, is that maybe the Dodgers are doing something really clever with, uh, uh, analyzing the opponents coming up and giving a real detailed game plan to their pitchers that really helps them optimize whatever it is they're doing for a particular game and not just for their approach to pitching in general. And if that's the case, then we would have to expect that there's he's not going to be able to take that part of it with him because, uh, as I believe from my reading, I think the Dodgers are one of the most advanced analytics teams in the business, and they're breaking new ground in all kinds of areas that we really don't know a lot about. But when I look at where, where the opportunities lie for analytics, I think one of them is going to be, or perhaps already is, scouting. Scouting the opponents, especially what they've been doing lately and all the kind of things we do when we set our, our, our DFS lineups, taken to a, you know an, an exponentially higher level. And if the Dodgers are doing that and the Angels can't, it could be a, a, a pumpkin-type experience for rather than a Cinderella experience for, for Tyler Anderson. I think that's right. And you know, the other thing about the Dodgers is they're so deep and so rich in resources and pitchers that, and, and you know, then, then again, last year during Anderson's breakout year, they were so far ahead so much for so much of the year that they never had to push Anderson and they could make him a five and five, five and fly guy or never had to expose him to the third time through the order if they didn't want to or get him out, you know, the minute a, you know, they were in anything resembling a big spot and a right-handed hitter is coming up to, put to the plate. And the Angels aren't going to have those kind of luxuries, or at the very least, the, the decision facing uh, Phil Nevin is going to be different between 
Anderson and the you know 11th pitcher on his staff versus what it was for Dave Roberts and the 11th pitcher on his staff, which could mean the, uh, that Anderson gets left in a little bit more and gets exposed to you know some more uh, some more less favorable situations. One of the more interesting signings uh, so far has been uh, Jose Quintana who moves from St. Louis where he finished the season last year. He started in Pittsburgh, of course, and going from Pittsburgh to St. Louis had better results, go figure. Uh, He goes to the Mets, and I'm wondering whether Jose Quintana might be a bit of a sleeper in that his overall stats don't look that great, but if you just look at what he did in St. Louis, it looks pretty fine. It did look pretty fine, and that was, a, I think, a targeted acquisition, a pretty savvy one by St. Louis, where, you know, if you think back to a year ago at this time, I think we thought Katana was, you know, just about finished. But uh, Pittsburgh picked him up as a re- reclamation project. And Katana, you know, found some of his former stuff. You know, I think it was a little more velocity. got his ground ball game going again. And that was always sort of his uh, path to success. And then things really took off when he got to St. Louis, which was really not that much of a surprise because St. Louis, of course, has that just otherworldly infield defense led by, you know, Arenado Goldschmidt at the corners. So it seemed like a very targeted acquisition by St. Louis to, you know, plug in a guy who sort of, you know, fits their system very well. Uh, And it worked out very well, you know, that with a, you know, Katana finished the year with a 293 ERA against a, 380 expected ERA, which I think is more representative of where we think he'll be in the long term. So he goes to the Mets where the infield defense maybe isn't quite St. Louis's level. But as we talked about earlier, you know, sort of the rest of the park environment's pretty good. So, you know, I, I think setting your expectations around that 380 X ERA from last year is probably a pretty good starting point. And so much value of starting pitchers, of course, accrues to guys who get wins. And Quintana looks like the kind of guy, if he just keeps his team in the game, the Mets are going to pound the ball. They've got a real solid bullpen. I think Jose Quintana, as I said, is probably going to be going, at least in the early drafts, at an ADP that doesn't really give full credit to what he did with St. Louis and what he's likely to do in New York. Uh, Another pitcher, we talked about guys moving to and from Texas, uh, Andrew Heaney, another ex-Dodger, signs with Texas, and this seems to be a good move for Andrew Heaney, at least as far as home runs are concerned. I don't know about the rest. What do you think? Yeah, there there were apparently a lot of teams invested or asking around about Heaney, and when you looked at his profile, it wasn't too hard to figure out why you know there's uh you know he chose texas which is a pretty uh for, for some of the reasons we talked about with the grom a pretty interesting place for a pitcher to hang out these days the real question of course much like the grom is going to be how much of he do we see as his uh you know his injury history is pretty checkered at this point and while his you know everyone was interested in him because his skills kind of popped with the dodgers last year they popped in and a pretty small sample size because, you know, he only threw 73 innings, struck out 110 guys in those 73 innings, which everybody loves. Uh, but, you know, it was a shoulder that, uh, you know, after he signed there, cost him, you know, a sore left shoulder, cost him about four months. Um, but, you know, velocity was up when he came back. You know, apparently, you know, was one of those guys who also, in addition to the fastball velocity, completely reshaped its slider. So the strikeout stuff seems like it's real. And, the question for the Rangers is going to be how much, how much of that can they get on the mound? 
I think it's interesting. Also, another guy with an 83% strand rate pitching for the Dodgers. So that, that number keeps popping up for yep. their, for their starters. And it'll be very interesting, I think, for us to watch this year and see how those ex Dodger guys do as far as strand rates in their new parks. Uh, Mike Clevenger moves from San Diego where he was kind of a, an injury riddled type of guy. He gets a contract in Chicago. He's going to try to reset his career, I think, with a one year deal. I have to say from fantasy, perspective. I like the uh, offense, but I like the offense in San Diego, but considering health and rapidly declining skills, I don't think I'm that interested in Mike Clevenger. Yeah. It, last year was a you know, big disappointment for him after missing uh, 2021 due to injury. It was late uh, 2020 time of John surgery, then a knee last year that kept him out even for the start of the year. And then when he came back, yeah, it didn't really look good. The velocity was way down from his prior peak and, you know, in general, the, his salad days from Cleveland when he was sort of a, an emerging, if unlikely sort of late career emerging, cause he was in his late twenties at the time, but, you know, near ACE from the Indian, from the Indians, then Indians, now guardians really seems like a long time ago. We didn't see much of that guy in San Diego and I'm with you. I don't think there's a heck of a lot of reason to think that he's magically going to appear one year later in Chicago. Uh, Chicago, I, you know, I, given the amount of money paid to all the pitchers we talked about, I think the one year, twelve million or whatever it was that Clevenger got, is not a strong statement by the White Sox. It's, you know, it's hard to say that twelve million dollars is a fire, but I think we're sort of approaching that point, right? I think that's right, and. Uh... You know, he's he's going to guaranteed rate field, and my worry is that the rate that's guaranteed is his home run per fly ball rate, and I, I don't want any part of that guarantee. Thank you very much. Uh, Kyle Gibson at age 35, coming off a pretty decent year, I guess you could say, uh, at least part of it. Uh, he had really good April, May, and August, September, and June and July were disastrous for him, and as a result, his overall results don't look that good. He goes from Philly to Baltimore. What do you think? You know, this is another place where we have to sort of recalibrate our long-term knowledge for current realities and that the the change in Camden Yards for that left field uh, carve-out adjustment last year was just so dramatic that we have to start thinking about Baltimore as a really good, good place to pitch. So, you know, some things went very wrong for Kyle Gibson, as you said last year, but you know, um, worse than the skills weren't as bad as they looked and moving to Baltimore, which also comes with a more, that more balanced schedule, which means fewer games against the rest of the iron of the AL East, you know, is a pretty decent landing spot for him. I'm still only tepidly interested, I would think, because our, you know, our, our base performance value says, He's got a BPX of 103, which means he's basically a very average pitcher, which I think sounds about right to me. A very average pitcher, but now in a at least slightly favorable for pitchers ballpark. So he's got to be on our draft boards and not, you know, he he's no longer a cast aside guy. In a story I read about the deal, uh, Baltimore said that uh, they're going to make changes to Kyle Gibson's pitch sequencing which sounds like maybe one of those management buzzwords that everybody says when they want to seem like they know what they're doing out there. Is there something to it? <laughs> Could they change the order that he throws his pitches and make him into something even better or even more consistent than he has been? 
you know, maybe there are, you know, and some of that might have to do with, you know, not to harp on the point of the ballpark, but some of that might have to do with pitching to his environment, right? Uh, you know, scanning his skills, he doesn't really have uh, a dramatic lefty-righty split. So that suggests that, you know, he's, again, he's kind of average. He's kind of average against both of them, which means, you know, there are some raw tools in there, presumably on both sides, that allow him to get pitchers out because if he didn't have a pitch to handle lefties, he would be getting tattooed by them. So, you know, there are some raw materials in there. Maybe the Orioles see something. He's long had a ground ball tilt a little bit less so last year in Philadelphia. Again, maybe that was by design because inducing ground balls in Philadelphia wasn't necessarily a great idea. But with this young, pretty talented infield behind him in Baltimore, maybe they go back to that a little bit more. You know, he's, I guess what we're saying is his profile, even though it hasn't ticked much above, 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 above average in recent years, does show a little bit of chameleon-like ability to adjust, reinvent, tweak his approach. So maybe that was a two-way street. Maybe Baltimore pitched him in the negotiations like, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And Gibson said, oh, yeah, I could do that. I've messed around with that before. Or I did that in 2019 or whatever. And, you know, maybe there's some confidence on both sides that there's a, that, that there's a path there. And last, but possibly also least, Matthew Boyd goes back to his old stomping grounds in Detroit after a very brief but somewhat successful stint in Seattle last year, uh, partly in relief, I believe. Uh, any interest at all in Matthew Boyd at this age 32 season stage of his career? I think not initially. There was some success last year. Like you said, he was out for a whole bunch of the year, came back and was uh, you know put in the bullpen and was throwing harder and I was I was kind of curious what that profile might look like but if I read if I remember correctly what I read I believe the Tigers said they were again looking at him as a rotation candidate and if that's the case I think I'm out uh because that's a pitcher with downside in a starting pitching role on a bad team with bad team context you know we've talked about some of the other mid rotation or back end rotation guys earlier who have changed teams and gone to, you know, better team contexts than, than this, if not outright good ones. You know, Kyle Gibson's a great example. I'd much rather deal with uh, Kyle Gibson in Baltimore than uh, Matthew Boyd in Detroit, even if Boyd has rediscovered a little bit of his stuff because that team context is just so bad. It has been an interesting off-season so far as far as starting pitchers go. We'll take a quick break here, Ray. And then we'll move on and talk about some of the big-name hitters who have moved, and they are some big names indeed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Judge hitting 310 after the one hit in Game 1. Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Ray Murphy. 
co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. And Ray, let's turn to the hitters who have signed free agent contracts so far this offseason. Probably the biggest name to get signed, and it happened relatively quickly, was Trey Turner going to Philadelphia. Of course, he leaves the Dodgers. This looks like a really good move for Trey Turner. He had a good season offensively every year he was in L.A., and Philadelphia is a much better offensive park. Yeah, just a really good landing spot for Trey Turner. His skills, to your point, I think play anywhere. You know, obviously he was a uh, he was a offensive force in Washington before he went to L.A. That was a downgraded environment in terms of ballpark, at least. But it didn't matter at all. And now he's going to a very favorable hitting environment in Philadelphia with a great lineup around him, even if they're missing Bryce Harper for half a season. So yeah, you've got to think that he just becomes. Uh, you know, the weed off man catalyst in this group and is just going to score a ton of runs, steal a ton of bases, you know, probably good, good news for his power output here too. Uh, nothing not to like about this from the trade. If you're a, uh, a long-term trade Turner owner. Or even if you're lucky enough to have drawn the first pick in your uh, straight draft or snake draft, Trey Turner's always a candidate to be the first overall pick, and uh, this move, I think, maybe solidifies his position in that regard. Uh, he does. It does for me, for sure. He's my 1-1 right now. Um, I have not had the first pick yet this year. Um, I had the second pick uh, in one draft that uh, Brent and I did a couple of weeks ago, and we got the second pick, and we're disappointed that Turner did not fall to us. That was even before the Philadelphia signing. So, uh, yeah, for me, if I get the opportunity at 1-1, it's going to be Trey Turner. Something interesting I read about Trey Turner the other day is that uh, a lot of people think that speed is a young man's game, and we hear that all the time, and of course Trey Turner's going to be turning 30 pretty quickly, and we would expect that that speed skill would fall off, but I read an article somewhere, I think it might have been Baseball Prospectus, where they said, in fact, elite-level speed guys don't see the same kind of fall-off as your you know, 15 to 18 stolen base guys who do fall off as they're uh, as they age into their 30s, I think Trey Turner might surprise a lot of people by continuing to run successfully even as he gets into his 30s, and certainly in this year, his age 29-30 year. Yeah, I've seen some of that take as well. I think it was uh, frequent, you know, occasional guest of yours here on the show, Joe Sheehan, made that point too, in that, you know, speed-only players age poorly, but players who are fast and have robust other skills like Turner does tend to age very well. He actually, she and actually made a Barry Larkin comp, comp for how Turner might age through his thirties, which I thought was a, a pretty interesting way of looking at it. But yeah, I think this is certainly not a case where, uh, you know, Turner signs an 11 year contract and we're only interested in him for the next two or three years. I certainly think his value holds up long beyond that. Even if the, even if the shape of his profile inevitably evolves as he gets into his thirties. Sad news for your Boston Red Sox in the shortstop department. Xander Bogarts, uh, Red Sox for his entire career to date, decided to leave and take his act to San Diego. He's 30 years old. They signed him to, I believe it was an 11-year contract, which we could talk about the rationale behind that, uh, except that that's what it took to sign him, I guess, and San Diego doesn't seem to care. But how does the move to San Diego, do you think, affect Xander Bogarts as a fantasy asset? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I am in d- very disappointed to see him leave Boston. Um, his The shape of his season last year was a little unusual for him. His power was way down, um, even though he had a uh, 307 batting average, which you know was his you know 
uh, not too far away from his career average, which is in the upper 290s. Uh, but the, uh, you know, so I think that the near 300 batting average is an established skill and should translate reasonably well to San Diego. But in terms of a power recovery, um, you know, it, it was a weird year last year for Bogarts. Like I said, he only had 15 home runs and it's not like our metrics say he was unfortunate. We only had him for 14 expected home runs. So there's no gap there, but you know, he also was reportedly dealing with some injuries during the season that he played through, especially his shoulder. I think we could say that, you know, his established power level is higher than what we saw last year. However, the power is probably what's going to get harmed moving to Petco Park and, you know, the NL West in general. So uh, it might be that he's his baseline is 300 and, you know, 20 to 22 home runs rather than, uh, you know, 25. So that's probably the turn in terms of ballpark team context change. That's it's probably a little bit of a power hit, but that's a, that's a pretty stout lineup in San Diego, as you say. And while I like to pretend that the Red Sox lineup is also stout, that's actually not, objectively true right now so <laughs> in that sense you know good for the runs and rbis for mr bogarts something that jumped out at me when i was looking at his player page is the ground ball percentage was at 46 percent in 2020 and he didn't hit a lot of home runs i guess well he didn't have as many plate appearances either and i don't know what it would be prorated probably not as bad as it looks but he had 23 home runs in 2021, which is kind of what we expect, with a 40% ground ball rate and a 37% fly ball rate. But last year, the home runs fell off, of course. The fly ball percentage fell off from 37 to 32, and he was up six points in ground ball percentage. Should that be a concern to anybody who's thinking of Xander Bogarts looking for a power rebound? Yeah, potentially. Again, I think it comes down to whether or not there's some underlying health explanation for that. Because even though the home runs were down by, you know, 50% from 23 to 15 between 2021 and 2022, you know, his slug was only down 40 points. There were a lot of doubles in there. Uh, You know, he was hitting the monster with some regularity, just not getting the ball over the monster. And it seemed like that, uh, you know, the, um, that ground ball, rate may have been a reflection of some changes to his swing due to uh, a shoulder issue. So I would think that the Padres also have some confidence in that too. But again, you know, the power is not going to get back. I I don't think we'll ever see anything in San Diego resembling the 33 home runs he hit in 2019 in Boston. I think that guy is probably not coming back. You mentioned his slugging percentage. His expected slugging at StatCast since 2019 has gone 474, 474, 468, 383 last year. And uh, his expected batting average by Baseball HQ's metric, uh, 283, 261, 270, 262 last year. Uh, so it looks like, at least in trend lines, there's a lot to be concerned about the way that uh, Bogart's sort of peaks, peak part of his career has actually trended. Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, it's not the, you know, he's a little bit all over the place in terms, you know, his contact skills, his play patient skills are entirely, you know, sort of, sort of dead on year to year, but sort of what happens after contact tends to take a lot of different shapes. As we said, between the ground ball, the ground ball, fly ball ratios, the expected slug, the expected home runs, you know, you can look at these with, you know, a bunch of different metrics, barrel percentage is another one that tends to jump around for him a lot. So, you know, there's some noise in those, um, some of those numbers after contact, even 
you know, with, with a full season of data. So it's hard to say where the true Bogarts is among all of those. But, you know, it, as he gets into his 30s, you know, I think there's there's some level of concern there that he may not be able to keep up the big numbers that he gets from volume and batting average that are sort of the constants, even when the power ebbs and flows. So it'll be interesting to watch. When I look at his dollar values over the last five years, excluding 2020, uh, $25.30, $24.27, I think that I'd probably be more comfortable valuing or projecting Bogarts at the lower end of that 24 to $30 range. But I think anything around 27 it seems justifiable, and I'd probably be willing to spend $27 worth of pick, uh, although I'd rather spend $21 worth of pick or $21 worth of auction cash. But I think that Bogarts deserves some credit for his consistency and maybe deserves some concern because of those trends that I mentioned earlier. I think that's a fair summary. Jose Abreu moves from one uh, pretty good hitter's park in Chicago to a pretty good hitter's park in Houston and probably a better lineup. He's 36 years old. He got a couple of years. Uh, Jose Abreu, what do you think of him in the uniform of the Houston Astros? You know, it's a pretty savvy move by Abreu for me. You know, he got he got he got plenty of money, you know, to to move to a different role on a team that's in a different place in its life cycle, right? He's been the leader of that White Sox team forever and sort of the the mainstay veteran and the guy that everybody looks to. And now he joins the World Champs and is really a complimentary piece who's I think going to be asked to do less and you know, that's probably reflective of where he is in his career now in that you know, last year he, you know, hit 300, which he's done a couple of times in the last couple of years. He did it in the short season as well. But with a big power drop off, um, he made more contact, but again, hit the ball on the ground a little bit more than he has prior in his career. And, you know, if, th- if those are all signs of skills softening, he's going to a place where they can tolerate that. And there are plenty of people around to pick him up, and it's a great team context for runs in RBIs, and I can only imagine he's going to bat, like, what, fifth or sixth in this lineup and have guys on base in front of him all the time and probably enjoy the heck out of it. Roster Resource has him batting fourth between Alvarez and Tucker, two left-handed hitters, so they go right, right, left, right, left, which is a pretty good roster construction. And, boy, if Jose Abreu is hitting behind Altuve, Bregman, and Alvarez and in front of Tucker and Pena, you got to like his uh, projected power stats. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great spot for him. The other thing about him that's interesting is, you know, if you sandwich him between the lefties, he's not ex- someone who's exhibited much of a platoon split throughout his career. He hits he hits righties very well. He hits lefties very well. So, you know, there's not going to be a lot of gaming the lineup going on, you know, when he's up there, even if it's between the lefties. And as you say, with those guys on those guys in front of him in that lineup, he's going to be batting with multiple runners on. Yeah, all summer long. Yeah, that's right. Counting stats up plenty for Jose Abreu. I should point out that I noticed in 2019 his slugging percentage was 503, and last year it was 446. That's a close to 50 a 50 point slugging percentage drop. Are you at all concerned about that? Is uh, especially for a guy of age 36? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Another place where we get those conflicting metrics because the slug was way down. You know, if you go back to 2019 and look, that was, you know, a really big year. 33 home runs, 123 RBIs, and it was 33 home runs against 37 expected home runs by our metrics. So, you know, just a monster power year. Uh, last year, though, like, like I said earlier, he only hit 15 home runs. The expected number was 24. Uh, so it, it suggests he was a little gypped on the power output in Chicago. Now, depending on how well he can tailor his swing to the Crawford boxes in Houston, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the whole, the overall home run outlook and moving from the White Sox to Houston for a right-handed hitter is not going to be beneficial to him. So I don't think we necessarily expect him to rebound all the way to that expected home run level. But, you know, there might, you know, much like Altuve, you know, has a grooved swing that, you know, parks balls in the Crawford boxes and gives him more, uh, you know, more home runs than maybe you would expect from some of the Statcast metrics. You know, it's entirely within Abreu's capability to sort of do the same thing. Yeah, Statcast expected power metrics are much more optimistic for Abreu, but his home run percentage, uh, the home run percentage in the Chicago uh, guaranteed rate field is 22 plus 22 percent for right-handed hitters and it's just barely above uh, zero as far as Houston right-handed power is concerned so it is a a park differential that is not favorable to Jose Abreu but I think there's a lot here that is favorable to Jose Abreu so uh, I'd still be willing he's been so consistent these last what 10 years or so just pounding out those uh, RBIs and pounding out those runs and just being a real excellent fantasy contributor and almost always at a bargain. seems like nobody ever believes that it's going to be another year of great stats from Jose Abreu. And it always is another year of great stats from Jose Abreu. Yep. And it's, you know, and a huge part of his value is not just being in the middle of the lineup. And this is a great lineup to be in the middle of, but he's out there every day, right? His plate appearance totals, you know, 2019, nearly 700, 21 over 650 last year, 679 as a 35 year old. I mean, he just bangs out 650 plate appearance seasons. If he gets 650 plate appearances in the middle of the season lineup, he's just going to, he's probably going to take a run at hundred RBIs and hundred runs. Josh Bell moves to Cleveland from San Diego. And of course he was in San Diego as part of the big Juan Soto deal came along with Juan Soto. Now he moves to the American League in Cleveland. It's a neutral sort of park for power. How do you like Josh Bell uh, in a Cleveland Guardians uniform? You know, interesting. His profile isn't actually all that different from Abreu's in that, you know, he's got uh, he's got a grab ball tilt now that's pretty well baked into his profile. So that I think the upside here is not power. You know, Cleveland's not a great place to go for power anyway. So it kind of makes sense that they're targeting someone who's got a more more well-rounded profile uh so you know i think the um you know he's more of a 20 home run guy than a 30 home run at this point but you know i think there's real batting average upside you know he makes a lot of contact when he's on draws a fair amount of walks so that's going to fit well in this lineup too uh whether he's in front of jose ramirez or behind him uh you know a lot of you know so a lot of balls in play which of course is sort of the quote unquote brand of the Guardians, right, that we heard so much about in the postseason and is that they don't strike out, you know, for a relative power hitter, you know, he he fits that profile. There's not a lot of platoon split. It's a you know, a lot of balls in play, a lot of contact, and you know, try to get a bunch of them to drop in. Uh, you know, we threw an up 300 batting average on him in the forecaster this year. And I think Cleveland is probably looking at that. And that was as much as what they were attracted to than anything else, not specifically the forecaster, but the, you know, the, the things in the profile that caused us to say that. 
It looks like he's going to play a lot. I was wondering at first whether this was bad news for Josh Naylor in Cleveland, who had a pretty good year, but it looks like what people think is that those two guys are basically going to slot back and forth between first base and DH. Uh, maybe Bell being a switch hitter might get a bit of an advantage, although he doesn't hit with the same power as a left-handed hitter. But it looks like Cleveland is trying to optimize their lineup with both of those guys playing and maybe taking the odd day off here and there for a DH. I don't know who's the better defensive player. I don't think either of them is uh, ever going to be mistaken for John Olerud or Keith Hernandez, but it uh, looks like they're both going to play. I think that's right. And, you know, if we think about the rest of the Guardians, there aren't a lot of guys around the rest of the field who push for DH at bats, right? This is not a team that's constructed where they can fill up the DH spot by, you know, bringing in their regulars for a, for a day off, you know, they're pretty stable on the infield of the rest of the infield with Jimenez and Rosario and Jose Ramirez. Uh, but the outfield is kind of a wasteland. You know, they're a lot, they, they searched through combinations looking for production all last year. Of course, there's Stephen Kwan at the top. Um, and late in the year, of course, in the postseason, Oscar Gonzalez sort of emerged as an option, you know, playing up, playing a lot in the corner outfield and providing some much needed thump at big times. But there's there's plenty of room in this lineup is what I'm saying for both both Bell and Naylor to handle first base and DH. And Naylor can probably go out to left field on a day when they want to have they want to give Gonzalez a day a day at DH and let Naylor do that once a week or something like that. They can probably handle that. Might create a little bit of uh, positional versatility and value for fantasy purposes. Carlos Santana continues to play in the big leagues, which sometimes strikes me as a bit of a surprise. And uh, he goes from Seattle, where he actually had a bit of a renaissance in the latter part of last year, to Pittsburgh, which is kind of the island of misfit toys uh, coming into Christmas season. Uh, Some people will get that illusion. Uh, Carlos Santana, is there a sneaky value play here based on the uh, elimination of shifts? I think Carlos Santana was the biggest victim of shifts in all of baseball last year. Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right about Santana having a little bit of a renaissance last year. You know, found his power swing in the second half. Of course, he only hit a buck 87 with 15 home runs in the second half of last year. But the buck 87 is probably pretty heavily influenced by that shifting that you talk about. And to your point about the Island of Misfit Toys, you know, they just have so many pieces, especially for first base DH in Pittsburgh. You know, they picked up Miguel Andujar late last season. They've added G Man Choi this offseason. There's Santana. There's um, a couple other ones who are escaping me at the moment. The difference seems to be, though, that at least by Pittsburgh standards, they gave Santana real money. I think it was six or seven million dollars on a one year deal. So I think that does mean that, you know, they're somewhat committed to him in one of those first base DH spots. And I think what we know from him in the second half last year is the power is going to play. You know, there's a big gap between that uh, 187 batting average in the second half and his 254 expected batting average over the same period. So if the shift is what allows that batting average to, you know, even split the difference and get halfway back to 250, if he's a 225 hitter with, you know, a prorated full season 30 home runs, that's not bad. Hey, I'd take 20 home runs if he hits 225, and you're going to get him in the 23rd round or in the reserve rounds in most leagues. Uh, He may not even be drafted, frankly. Uh, I think... One of the things that you have to be aware of when you're looking at Carlos Santana is the possibility that he gets traded partway through the year. This seems to be something that a lot of the 
lower rung teams are doing, signing old guys, waiting till the end of the season and then flipping them for a couple of prospects and hoping to strike some value there. And also the signing of uh, G-Man Choi, a left-handed hitter, seems to take away Carlos Santana's opportunities in that regard. He hit under 180 last year, hitting from the left side, which is even worse than his overall average. So I wonder if Carlos Santana becomes a a right-handed platoon-type player because he really can't switch hit. I think there's a lot of playing time risk here with Santana, although it might be ameliorated because he doesn't have to hit into the shift as a left-handed hitter anymore, and maybe that'll bump up his his batting average a few points. Yeah, it's funny. I always remember him as having, uh, as his power being from the left side, I thought, but you know, looking at his platoon splits, and that hasn't been the case in a number of years. So, so you're right. But I guess the other possibility is that you know, as we continue to recalibrate ourselves with the NL having the DH, there is you know potentially room for both Choi and Santana in the lineup against right-handed pitchers most days if they decide they want to go that way. On the other hand, if if Carlos Santana continues to hit 180 against right-handed pitching, uh, then they're probably going to have to look somewhere else. There's a limit to even Pittsburgh's ability to absorb bad at-bats. Cody Bellinger goes from the Dodgers to the Cubs. Looks like he's going to bat cleanup for Chicago, but there's uh, a lot of still a lot of wish casting when people are looking here for a rebound from his MVP season to the somewhat disastrous last couple of seasons. Yeah, boy, it's been a long time since... He was such a stud in 2019, of course, you know, the short 2020, he wasn't bad, but then, you know, um, you'll famously recall the uh, separated shoulder, right? Uh, I think it was actually in the World Series celebration, wasn't it? That's right. Sort of of seems like uh, he has never, that's really the moment he's never been the same. He wasn't quite right before that in that short season, but we would have given him a a, a pass on that. But then the the shoulder really seems like it got in the way. Um, And, you know, we talked earlier about how some of these Rays and Dodgers and some of these really smart teams, you know, I I can't get over the fact that the the Dodgers gave up on him and weren't willing to pay him the – the uh, you, you know the minimum offer or whatever it was the nineteen million dollar uh, you know uh, arbitration guarantee the qualifying offer is the word I'm looking for they weren't willing to give him the qualifying offer the Cubs signed him for you know a little bit less than that but the Dodgers know the most about him and felt like he wasn't worth nineteen million maybe that's because you know there are other things going on in L A they have other priorities or you know they're planning on going in a different direction. Maybe uh, you know maybe, maybe it does is not the indictment of Bellinger I'm making it out to be, but that's still stuck in my head is that the you know the smartest analytical organization in the game you know felt like he wasn't worth the money. So maybe the Cubs will prove him wrong. Maybe the fresh set of eyes or the new pitching coach or any of those things you get when you change teams another year removed from the injury, any of those things could pop up and get him back to what he was, but. I think if the Dodgers thought that was a realistic possibility, they would have offered him the $19 million to stay. I think the difference with Cody Bellinger is going to come down pretty much to his plate discipline. It's been getting steadily worse as his career has moved forward. He's swinging more outside the zone, making less contact doing it, making weaker contact all the time. And in his 2019 um, MVP season. I mean, it was a happy fun ball year with the 47 home runs, and we have to keep that in mind. But his plate discipline was a lot better than I think. Uh, 
I'm just taking this off my head, but I think he almost had the same level of walks as strikeouts in 2019, uh, 14%, 15% of both, or somewhere in that general vicinity. And last year, I think it was something like 6 and 30 or 6% walks, 30% strikeouts, something along those lines. I don't know what has gone wrong with Cody Bellinger in that regard. Players are supposed to get better at plate discipline as they get older, but he's got significantly worse. And I think if anybody wants to put a bet in on Cody Bellinger, and I've heard people are putting bets in on Cody Bellinger in early drafts, I think one of the things you have to take on faith is that he's going to do something about this wild swinging and out-of-control plate discipline. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, even again, looking at his splits last year, that did get a little bit better in the second half. He, he got his contact rate up to 74%, which is the best we've seen going back to uh, that 2020 season before he hurt the shoulder. So maybe all of that's related, but you're right. The walks are down. Walks can be a trailing indicator. He was He's always going to draw a lot more walks when he was a threat to hit 47 home runs than now when he's a strikeout machine, right? They're going to throw him more strikes until he shows he can hit them. So, you know, that the, the walk uh, decline is probably not surprising. But, you know, on the, to counter-argue my own point from earlier, there were reportedly a lot of teams that were ch- kicking the tires on Bellinger before he decided to settle with the Cubs. And Bellinger and his agent, who I believe is Scott Boris, t- were very clear that they were not interested in talking about multi-year deals they only wanted a one-year sort of make good get back on the market um opportunity which sort of suggests that they think this can get a lot better so there are a lot of conflicting things to figure out here but again you know myself being somewhat risk averse at least on the you know decent price that bellinger's gonna pay, gonna cost uh, at the draft table i once again assume that one of the 14 people sitting around me will want him more than I do. Mitch Hanniger signs in San Francisco, of course, longtime Seattle outfielder. He's kind of the opposite of Cody Bellinger, isn't he? He's like super consistent. You know exactly what you're getting. It doesn't vary a whole lot from year to year, and you can feel pretty comfortable with the risk, except for injuries. And and it's a huge risk, right? You know, right. He missed missed the entire short 2020 and then came back with a monster 2021 and then missed more than half of last year. And, you know, it's, it's almost an every year, an every year model. He had full seasons in 2018 and 2021. And the other three seasons around that only add up to, you know, less than one full season. So the Giants probably think they can keep him healthy. You know, the Giants are pretty good at dealing with veteran players and you know we've seen them run a lot of you know know, there's the canonical example of brandon crawford but you know they've they've had an older core for a number of years and they've gotten a lot of mileage out of them so maybe they think hanniger fits that profile but you're right when hanniger's in the lineup the skills are right there you know it's real power the contact is not bad for today's day and age there's not much of a platoon split he hits Lefty's really hard and he's, you know, a little, a tick better than average against righties. There's, there's a lot to like there. It's just, it's hard to say with confidence how much of them you're going to get. And finally, among the hitters, uh, I thought this was interesting. Wilson Contreras took less money than he was offered elsewhere to go and play in St. Louis, taking the place of Hall of Fame bound Yadier Molina. Contreras said he always wanted to be a Cardinal, which must have grated the Cubs faithful. <laughs> but uh, how do you like Wilson Contreras in St. Louis versus uh, Chicago? 
Yeah, I guess when you sign that big contract, maybe you know something slips out of your mouth. But uh, you know, I'm not sure. I would have said I always wanted to be a Cardinal to the to, to the Cub Cub fans. That's got a sting, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Contreras, you know, has been kind of a tantalizing catcher. You know, a little, little bit of a tease, and then maybe we always thought there was going to be more there. But the con the, the, the um, combination of some injuries that kept him from having full seasons when he was hitting well, and then a couple of seasons where he didn't hit as well, even though he stayed healthy, led us to sort of never realizing, you know, the stars never aligning into one big season with the Cubs. He's only 31. It's not too late for a catcher to get all of those stars to align. We hung up a 30 home run, 275 BA upside on him in the forecaster this year on the idea that, as we said, there, there's still a career year lurking in here somewhere. Uh, but, you know, there's there's also no guarantee we're ever going to see that come together either. No, that's for sure. It's also a, a pretty bad home run situation park-wise. St. Louis is minus 18%, I think, for right-handed hitters and plus almost plus 30% at Wrigley Field. So Wilson Contreras is going to have his hands full trying to get up to uh, – the same home run levels as we've perhaps become used to. On the other hand, his counting stats could be pretty good because uh, the projection I saw said he's going to hit second in that lineup right in front of uh, Goldschmidt and Arenado. Although I have to say I could see the moving Goldschmidt up to second because he's such a good hitter and he can run a, a, probably a lot more than Contreras can. But Wilson Contreras figures to be in a pretty good position to bring up some counting stats depending on how much they're willing to let him catch. You know, catchers don't usually get the 650 plate appearances, but he could DH. I, th- that was exactly the point I was going to make. The batting second in the lineup is potentially a boon for him. I agree with you. I, I think my bigger question, though, is going to be just that, whether they let him DH enough to, you know, assuming he's healthy, take a run at, you know, even 550 plate appearances would be a career high. And, you know, does he get all of the days off when he's not catching or, you know, do they pop him in at DH that that once or twice a week and give him, you know, even six starts a week instead of five is the difference you're talking about here. And I think that, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get some clarity about that come spring. Maybe it'll be a wait and see thing, but I think that's uh, that's a pretty important piece of his value proposition for fantasy purposes. And I guess what we have to do is look at the entire St. Louis lineup and say, if they want to give Contreras DH at bats, who loses at bats? And is Contreras better than them and therefore likely to get more of the time? Or is whoever's the putative or nominative DH better than Contreras and likely to get the time? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, maybe this is a team that keeps the DH open because you can give Arenado a day off. You can give Goldschmidt a day off. You can give the outfielders a day off and still have room to give Contreras a day off at the DH spot, right? But if they the minute they add a, uh, you know, a putative, as you say, even – you know, 60% DH, that starts to create a little bit of a log jam. So we'll have to wait and see how the, uh, how, how the, how the roster pieces together for that. At Roster Resource, they're giving Juan Yepes the starting nod batting eighth as a DH, which doesn't sound like an enormously high bar that Contreras might have to clear to pick up. You know, I'm not saying he's going to get all the DH plate appearances when he's not catching, but as you said, if he can go from 450 plate appearances to 550 by uh, DHing a third of the time when he's not catching, 
it's it's a possibility, and it'll be certainly something that we have to follow from a news angle and in spring training. Yeah, I would assume that's uh, something we will get some comments on from uh, the Cardinals during the month of March. That's our hitters. Ray, we'll come back in a second to talk about the relief pitchers. But first, uh, some good news for all of our baseball forecaster fans. It's on the way. It is on the way. I actually have one in my hands right now, PD. Did you get it in the mail or did you just pick it up off the print run? (laughs) (laughs) No, I got it in the mail uh, before before the individual ones got sent out. Brent and I got each get sent a box of them and the boxes came first this year. Usually they don't, but uh, I I scored one that way. I saw Ron Chandler had posted a picture with with his on Twitter, so he got his box too. And yes, they they hit the mail, uh, mail stream in the U.S. I think last Thursday and Friday. So using uh, USPS Priority Mail, our American friends should start seeing them, I would think, early this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and hopefully not far behind for our Canadian friends. Well, coming by Canada Post, uh, anything ahead of the All-Star break would be a, a <laughs> <laughs> would be a triumph. Uh, what's new in the forecaster this year, Ray? Yeah, so there's, uh, you, you know, it's always a, uh, a, a labor of love uh, to put that together in the two-month sprint to the uh, – to Thanksgiving to get that off to the printer and in the, in the mail. So, uh, you know, a lot of old favorites uh, in terms of player analysis. If you've had the player boxes, both the hitters and pitchers, the last couple of years, they will look very familiar. Uh, there are some subtle tweaks in there around the expected home run formula, and Ron Chandler introduced a new formula for Lima grades. So we've done some uh, some under-the-covers surgery to some familiar metrics. Uh, you know, one thing that's really – uh, impactful, I think, that we'll talk a lot about as the preseason goes on is a giant research piece from Ed DiCaria in uh, our essays section of the book about the future of measuring playing time and some some new metrics that Ed came up with to measure playing time other than at-bats, games, plate appearances, uh, that I think is really going to open up um, another realm of research for us uh, and analysis. So I'm a, I'm a, that's what I'm very excited about. We're doing a uh, we're doing a YouTube or a a video sort of release party for the book uh, later this week. That'll be up on the HQ website uh, once uh, once we have the logistics pinned down. And uh, Ed's going to join us to talk more about that piece because we're so excited about it. We want to uh, we want to make sure we give that uh, its due there. And meanwhile, we should say that uh, a lot of what people have come to expect from the baseball forecaster is still there, uh, still uh, don't want to call it a format exactly, but that's what it is. It's uh, an old, comfortable, like a, like a well-worn baseball mitt. Yes, exactly. You know, we, 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 we're, we're, the, we're the band who has to come out and play the new album, but, you know, play the hits but, uh, in the second encore too, right? So, uh, you know, Ron Chandler's introduction is always uh, one of my favorite things to read every year. Um, I always, when he sends over the first draft of it, you know, kind of halfway through the book process, I always put everything down and marinate on that for a couple of hours. And, you know, this year's is another really good effort from him. And of course, you know, everything we do in the book is kind of founded in the Encyclopedia of Fanalytics, which is our, you know, our entire tome of research that, you know, really is the 30-year collection of everything we uh, you know, of, of the way we look at the game, the way we look at players. Uh, so if you you know, are new to the book, you know, we always recommend starting there. And if you digest that, you'll, uh, you'll have a great idea of 
not just you know what we think, but why we think it. Uh, as you, once you dive into the players, so uh, yeah, we've got uh, some old and some new as as we aim for every year. In the encyclopedia of analytics section, uh, there's a a fairly big and quite thorough discussion of baseball forecasters forecasting process. I don't remember that from last year, but is that something new this year? Um, I think it's I think it's pretty well reworked. I think we took um, a bunch of pieces that were you know scattered around the individual metrics or the individual sections of the encyclopedia and kind of turned it into a more of a uh, introduction slash this is what we do kind of this this, this is how we do it kind of uh, it's almost a uh, one of the guys in my league writes up a. Uh, postseason summary of his team and he calls it a mood statement i almost think that applies to the section of the the analytic of the of the encyclopedia you're talking about it's sort of the uh the tone setting for everything that follows right right and uh one of the things i like about the uh, analytics encyclopedia is that i've got a bunch of stuff in there from over the years i didn't get any uh, items this year i didn't do any research pieces for baseball hq i didn't really do a lot of writing for the site. And so there's, uh, not a lot of anything big in the forecaster from me, but there's, uh, some old stuff in there. That's fun to look at. It's fun to see your own name in a, any kind of publication, especially one this beloved and, and this of this long standing. It's pretty exciting for everybody who's involved. I, I've been doing this for, you know, probably 20 of these books. And yes, I, uh, my my wife was laughing at me because uh, Brent got his box of books on Friday, I think, and on Saturday I was going to the door every hour, looking outside, waiting, w- looking for my box, which you know is particularly dumb because I've got one of those doorbells that chimes, you know, any, you know, with the camera doorbell that anytime anybody sets foot on my stupid chimes anyway. But even though it wasn't chiming, I was like, is my book here? Is my book here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, does, it it very much does not get old, as you say. It's a it's definitely a thrill. In case the you got the USPS Ninja delivery man, yeah, sneaking just, just around the ring they, doorbell. Yeah, just in case he was wearing a, wearing his invisibility cloak and dropping the book off. How many books are in a box? Uh, twelve, I believe. What do you do with twelve baseball forecasters? Uh, yeah, I, I have a list of local people I distribute them to. Um, you know, one for um my father-in-law and you know some other random local league mates and stuff like that. Um. And then I, I used to hold them for the uh, the local first pitch event. That would bring my box so we could sell them at the Boston event. But uh, now we just ship them directly to First Pitch Florida rather than uh, me having to schlep them over there. So uh, I have a couple for my own distribution. I'm assuming your father-in-law probably isn't listening to this podcast, so I feel free to ask, does his forecaster get wrapped in Christmas wrapping paper? Um, it has in the past. I think it no longer does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, well, if I was a baseball fan, I'd love to get the baseball forecaster for Christmas. I really would. And, uh, I, I remember in years past the, uh, uh, baseball HQ forums, there always was a thread that had, it always had the same title, got your forecaster yet. And people from all over, literally all over the world would be reporting in, I got mine today. And, and, uh, I remember there used to be a subscriber, to the forums. I don't know if he's still on there, but he was in Uganda. He lived in Uganda and he was always, Oh yeah. He was always the last guy to get his forecaster pretty much, except for us here up here in Canada, especially Western Canada where, (laughs) you know, they deliver by Pony Express or something like that. And it's all relatively delayed, but it is an exciting time. If you're 
on the uh, subscription list for the uh, Baseball Forecaster. It's on the way, and if you're not, you can buy it in bookstores. You can buy it direct from the site. What are your options there? Yes, so I, the best move is to order it directly from us. Uh, we've now cleared our shipping backlog as of this week, so if you order, it should ship pretty much the next day. Um, they are available at Amazon, et cetera, your favorite retailer. Usually not until... Um, very early in the year, it seems like it takes Amazon a couple of weeks to get their shipment of books and get them into their, um, distribution empire. Uh, they are taking orders now, but I think they're quoting, they, they're usually quoting first week of January to start shipping it. So if you want it now, best to order from us. Uh, the other good news about that is if you order directly from us, you get, uh, the PDF for free as well. And all of the, uh, projection files and Excel spreadsheets and all the stuff that go, that comes with it. So, uh, another advantage to buying direct from your local baseball HQ. How much is it? Uh, $28.95 is the full price. Uh, we run a pre-order discount every year if you pre-order in the fall before it hits the mail. But now that it's actually shipping, the full price is $28.95 plus shipping. And shipping is what, three or four bucks? Uh, it is eight. Thank you, USPS. At whatever price, I have to say, it's a terrific value. There's plenty to read in there, a lot to get you thinking about uh, the players that you're going to be looking at next year. A great baseline for considering a, a lot of that kind of stuff. The little write-ups at the far right end of each player profile are just super interesting, very pithy, little, often witty little comments on the players and their upsides and downsides. And it's a terrific read. It's just, uh, for me, it's must-have reading for anybody who plays fantasy baseball at all seriously. Wait a minute! I lied about the price. It's only twenty six ninety five. I got the eight dollars for the shipping confused with the with the six in the price. So twenty six ninety five plus eight bucks shipping. Okay, so thirty five bucks roughly. Yeah. Okay. Well, seems like a good deal. The baseball forecaster you can get it at Amazon, as Ray said, not right away, or you can go to baseballhq.com, look on the site for the baseball forecaster logo, and uh, get it ordered today, and you'll have it what in a week or so, a little less. Should be about that. I think you can, we're not guaranteeing holiday delivery anymore, but if you, sh if you order it today, it probably will get pretty close. All right. Baseball forecaster. You really don't want to miss it. Baseball HQ radio. Let's get back to uh, our review of free agent signings. Ray, we'll wrap it up by looking at the relief pitchers. Some interesting names here. I don't think we have to go into too much depth, but what really interested me was how your team, the Boston Red Sox, really attacked their bullpen deficiencies from last year, signing Kenley Jansen and Chris Martin. Yeah, they clearly have identified that they don't want to have another year like last year's Red Sox bullpen. And having lived through last year's Red Sox bullpen, I can tell you I appreciate that. Um, it was pretty bleak last year. You know, there was Matt Barnes early and then Tanner Houck for a while. John Schreiber doing a lot of big work at the end of the year. And he was probably their best reliever day in and day out last year. But clearly they needed some help there. Martin was unbelievable in the second half of the season. I think he had one walk and 46 strikeouts and something like 29 or 30 innings for the Dodgers. And then Jansen, of course, has been uh, as stable a commodity in the closer role for a long time now. So that uh, both stabilizes the, you know, you would think those guys are the eighth and ninth inning and then stabilizes the rest of the group and puts guys like Schreiber and Hauk and Barnes and, Jolie Rodriguez, who they also signed into more appropriate 
you know, mid-game kind of roles. So it actually looks like a competent bullpen now, which, as we talked about with the Bogart signing earlier, um, you know, raises raises some other questions. Right now, the Red Sox are in a bit of a -a whack-a-mole situation. They solved the bullpen, but, you know, created a giant hole with shortstop. We'll, we'll, We'll stay tuned and see how that works out. Boston also loses Matt Strom from its bullpen mix, one of the left-handers there. Uh, how does that affect Boston? And more importantly, how does it affect Matt Strom as a fantasy asset in Philadelphia? Yeah, so Strom goes into a you know a now unsettled bullpen in Philadelphia. You know that bullpen had its ups and downs last year too. Maybe not to the the downs weren't as bad as the Red Sox and they got all the way to the World Series. Clearly, they figured some things out. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know the Red Sox added Joey Rodriguez as their sort of token lefty. So Strom jumps into uh, the Phillies bullpen. We'll see what happens as far as them retaining guys like Alvarado and Brad Hand, but you would think Strom would be one of the lead lefties in that bullpen. And he's not a lefty-only guy. He he does well against lefties, but also can handle the occasional righty. So he's potentially in a, a good spot in a fairly unsettled bullpen there. The Angels had uh, bullpen trouble last year as well. They signed uh, Carlos Estevez late of Colorado. Uh, Carlos Estevez is a guy that Doug Dennis, our bullpen's columnist, liked as a relief pitcher despite him pitching in Colorado. How does Carlos Estevez figure into the L.A. bullpen, and could he be in the closer mix? I I think he probably is in the closer mix. Remember the uh, Angels had Rizal Iglesias last year, paid him a ton of money at this time last year, and then after three months decided that their team was not in a condition where they should be paying a reliever a ton of money and shipped him off to Atlanta. Uh, so the, after that, it was sort of a revolving door in the back of the Angels' bullpen. Uh, so I, I think Estevez probably jumps right to the top of that mix. And, and, and I think you know we'll wait for pronouncements in the spring, but you know could very well be, you know if not in the mix, I think he's certainly in the mix and could be even name the closer. If I look at what Jock Thompson is doing right now, he's, you know, dividing up the saves among Estevez and Jimmy Herget, Bryant DePera, Aaron Loop. You know, these are the guys, the incumbents are the ones that were sort of, you know, pretending to be the closer in August and September last year after Iglesias got traded. I, I would not be at all surprised if Estevez quickly jumps to the top of this pile. He really did something about hit suppression last year. Up until then, he was a like a 140 whip guy uh, for many, many years, and then he fell all the way to 118, partly because he pushed down opponents' batting averages to barely over 200 after having been in the 280s, 290s, 300s for a long time. Whatever Carlos Estevez did last year, I guess the question is, does it play as well in the thicker air at the coast as opposed to being up in uh, Colorado? Yeah, he was creamed by, you know, hitting strand rates and home run per fly for his entire Colorado career, as you often see for, you know, high octane fastball guys, uh, you know, who aren't necessarily hard to elevate. He's had a a fly ball split, uh, a fly ball tilt, I should say, in his entire career. And of course, uh, that's not great news for Coors Field. We've often talked about you know, the poison of Coors Field, sure, is the ball carrying over the fence, but it's also the wildly expansive outfield and the amount of gaps between the outfielders. And it looks like Estevez, as you say, until last year, was really victimized by that. So uh, presumably, you know, what going to the thicker air of Anaheim could cure a lot of what traditionally ailed him, even though we kind of pitched around it last year successfully. 
Tommy Canely goes back to New York from the Dodgers. Uh, where does he fit into the Yankees bullpen? Yeah, quite a nice service by the Dodgers. If you remember, uh, Conley was uh, with the Yankees, pitching pitched very well back in uh, 2019. And then I think in, 20, in the short 2020, he got hurt. The Dodgers signed him as a free agent, rehabbed him, got all of like 13 innings out of him over two years. And now he goes back to the Yankees. So the Yankees must be like, you yeah. know, Thanks for uh, you know running that rehab for us, um, but you know Conley's a pretty uh, you know when healthy is another you know pretty skilled reliever uh, you know and the question of course becomes can he stay healthy uh, you know it's he's thrown all of seventeen innings in the last three years uh, mostly due to Tommy that Tommy John surgery in twenty twenty that I mentioned uh, he was really good for the Yankees in twenty nineteen and we'll see if he comes back to. Uh, that level of success. Obviously, the Yankees had some bullpen problems last year. Clay Holmes emerged. Aroldis Chapman melted. Lois Saiga and Chad Green were hurt. But those guys, you know, Lois Saiga at least should be back this year. So Michael King was a big part of that bullpen until he got hurt. So we'll see how the Yankees piece this thing together. But Conley's certainly going to be a, uh, a piece of it. The Diamondbacks signed Miguel Castro away from the Yankees, a reliever as well, right-hander, and Miguel Castro seems to find himself right in the mix for a possible closer role. Yeah, that's a bleak bullpen too, right? With uh, you know the, both Melanson and um, Ian Kennedy both kind of looked like they were out of gas last year while they were trying to hold down that role. So uh, yeah, they'll turn to Castro as part of that now. I wouldn't be surprised if there are... Uh, if there's more more to come there, so tough to project the role just yet. But uh, Castro is at least a quality arm for a bullpen that needs quality arms. Of the four guys seemingly in contention at this early stage, Kevin Ginkle, Joe Mantiply, Mark Melanson, and Castro. Uh, Mantiply's the only guy who had an ERA last year under three, so that would seem to give him at least something of a leg up. Uh, Castro, Melanson, both over four. Melanson, in particular, way over four. So I think this Arizona situation probably still pretty unsettled. As is the situation in Pittsburgh, it looked a little more solid than it turned out to be, and they signed San Francisco left-hander Jarlin Garcia. What role do you think he has to play? Uh, you know, I would think that if he's healthy, that's still Bednar's job, and everybody else falls in behind him. Uh, but Jarlin you know, Garcia is not uh, not uninteresting. So, and it's the Pirates, so you would think that you know there are opportunities to be had there. Of course, we often in our fantasy worlds are focused on who has the ninth inning. But of course, a major league team is interested in fielding, you know, in having more than one quality reliever. You know, um, Garcia was really good in 2021 with uh, 115 BPV and faded, faded a little bit last year, but, you know, still a, um, you know, st- still a uh, above average with a base performance value of 89, a 374 ERA and a, ERA expected ERA in the low fours, so you know looks to be more like uh, you know from the left side a uh, a piece of a bullpen, but not likely uh, sharp enough to be in the ninth the ninth inning mix. And a couple of other moves: uh, right-handers Trevor Gott and Nick Anderson change teams. Gott goes from Milwaukee to Seattle. Nick Anderson goes from one team that does pretty well with innovative management of bullpens in Tampa Bay to another team that's pretty good at managing pitchers in Atlanta. Uh, I like Nick Anderson better of the two, but what do you think of Gott and Anderson? Yeah, I was pretty. I, I think one of the things that took me back the most in 
the forecaster was, um, you know, when I looked at Nick Anderson's box and he's now 32, which, you know, I don't think we've really seen him in any real capacity since that 2020 World Series we were talking about earlier. Um, but he, he kind of, he's one of those guys who, in my mind, at least got old in a hurry. Um, there was, there used to be really good stuff there. We'll see if the Braves can tease it back out. God, of course, is the progeny of a major league closer, which had some people excited about him when he was, uh, you know, first coming up because, uh, you know, everything, you know, him and Hunter Harvey were like the next generation of closers of the, the second generation, right? We haven't seen anything um, to actually realize that potential yet. But, uh, you know, he signs and gets gets uh, more opportunities to find his way, but he's approaching 30. So we have to stop thinking of him as a prospect. Yeah, and in both instances, Ray, these are bullpens that are pretty well stocked already. Both teams have multiple options at the closer position in the closer role, and they're not shy about moving it around a little bit. So it looks like if you're looking at Nick Anderson or Trevor Gott as a source of saves, a lot of things would have to go right for either of them to get themselves into the mix. It looks like they're going to be set-up guys or you know those kind of swingy-type guys that you know, they, they play a role in any bullpen, but they don't provide a lot of fantasy value, really. That's exactly right. If either of those guys, you know, f- to loop back to the immediately previous conversation, if either of those guys had signed in Arizona, we'd probably have be looking at these pr- pretty differently and putting these guys a little bit more under the microscope because that's such an unsettled bullpen. But in a settled bullpen, yeah, these guys are going to slot in as the, uh, you know, the fifth righty or something like that. All right, Ray, I appreciate you taking the time. We certainly put you through your paces today. If anything else happens in the hot stove period, we'll have to have another go at it. But it looks like to me, there's most of the big names have been signed. Are you expecting much more to happen before the new year? You know, I'm still waiting on the other two shortstops, you know, maybe because I'm still hung up about Bogarts leaving Boston, but I'm curious to see where Carlos Correa and Dan, Dansby Swanson go. And I know, uh, Chris Bassett and Carlos Rodon still have a market out there. So, you know, there's still some dominoes left to fall here. I'm not, I'm not tuning out for the holidays just yet. All right, Ray. Well, thanks very much for helping us out doing this. I do appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Excellent. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, December 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Tuesday special edition, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, the code general manager and columnist at the site. It's always fun to talk with Ray about fantasy baseball, and we'll be hearing plenty more from Ray in the coming season on the show. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Pods, Google Pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. 
Thanks again for listening. We expect Baseball HQ Radio to return right around when pitchers and catchers report in mid-February, although we might spin out another special edition if something really big happens in the meantime. Whenever it starts, we're really looking forward to another season of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again in 2023. Have a great holiday season, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.